Well, we are in an eight-week series on the life of King David here at TLC, and to write this and to actually film this, we went over to Israel to walk in the literal footsteps of David. We interviewed experts. We traveled with an archaeologist. We went to key spots in David's life journey to try to understand him a little bit better, and that meant that as part of his quest, we had to follow David underground into caves. And so we're gonna talk about David's cave times today. And that means I wanna start with a poll to find out where you guys stand when it comes to caves. I've discovered that there's two kinds of people when it comes to caves. First, people who love exploring caves. When you are driving along a freeway and you see a tourist trap billboard advertising a cave, you cannot resist. You have got to pull over and visit that cave. Second, there are people who don't like the idea of being underground, in the dark, with limited oxygen and tons of earth over their heads, ready to collapse upon them at any moment. How many of you are the first kind of person? You love caves. Let me see your hands. We've got a few of you here. That's good. How many of you would say, I'm the second kind of person? No caves, please, ever, never. Well, I guess I'm kind of the first kind of person, all right? I, I do really like caves. And one day in Israel, I thought, this is going to be the best day ever. Because our guide for the day, Johnny, said, I'm going to take you and your wife, Lori, and our videographer who was recording all of this for us, Jamie Rom, into a cave. And he takes us into this cave. But it was kind of cool. It was just sort of like a little hollowed out space in, in, in a cliff. And I thought, all right, nothing special. Well, I was a little disappointed, to be honest with you. And it was, as we started to leave, Johnny says, of course, you may want to explore further. And he points to this opening in the back wall, and he claims this is actually not a cave that stops there. It's a tunnel that worms its way through the hill. Nobody knows how old it is. And then it comes out on top of the hill in kind of this sinkhole area. And so I said, awesome, let's go! And Johnny and Lori go, awesome, you go, and we will meet you at the opening on the other side. And so I looked at them sort of like pityingly, and I plunged in. Now, when the light of my iPhone wasn't on, I could not see an inch in front of me. As you can see, it got pitch dark. At first, very exciting, but then the tunnel keeps going and going and going and going and going much longer than I felt led by Johnny to believe it would go. And I'm thinking to myself, how long does this tunnel go? And how well do I really know Johnny anyway? <laughs> and now my imagination is starting to kick in kind of, I don't know if you're, I don't know if you ever imagine, I'm probably alone in this, but if you ever imagine narration of your life, anybody? Well, I'm imagining my narration narrating the trailer to the documentary about my death. <laughs> One California pastor lost forever in an ancient Middle Eastern cavern. And honestly, my breathing starts getting shallow. I'm starting to panic. And you know what I discovered? It is very easy to turn from the first kind of person to the second kind of person extremely fast. <laughs> what happened next? I'll get to in a few minutes. But first, the questions I had when I was in that cave, how long will this go on? <laughs> will I ever see light again? Can I really trust my guide? They're actually exactly the questions that David must have had 
about his own cave time, only at a much more existential level. So grab your message notes that are in your bulletins. Let's talk about finding light in the darkness, in the cave times of life. Because maybe you are in a cave right now. You barely got yourself to church today. You're in the cave of disease or the cave of divorce or the cave of a death or the cave of the death of a dream or the cave of a job you hate or a job you don't have or finances you don't have or perhaps the darkest cave of all, the cave of foolishly rooting for the Raiders. Again, that's a dark cave from which there's no escape. But it could be all kinds of caves. Maybe you don't even know why you feel like you're in a cave, but you are in your emotions. You feel like you're underground in the dark with limited oxygen and tons of earth over your head ready to collapse on you at any moment. Well, today, David models survival strategies when you're going through cave times in your life. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 22 and Psalm 142 this morning, but I want you to understand what's happening here. So let's get some background. When we last left David last weekend, the Bible says David was prospering in how many of his ways? All his ways. Imagine what that means. Literally, he had the golden touch. Every single thing he did prospered. He had no bad luck, all good luck, for the Lord was with him. He has just defeated Goliath. He becomes a celebrity. The Bible says the young girls in the nation composed a song about him. That's the truth. That's in the Bible. They compose this pop song. Everybody's singing it for real. He marries the princess. He's rich. Then suddenly... Next verse, when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. He feels threatened by him. He urges his aides to assassinate him, and he even tries to spear David to death twice. And so David has to start running for his life. And there's a phrase, David fled and escaped, that appears six times in the next Five chapters. Fled and escape, fled and escape, fled and escape, fled and escape. He's always just barely escaping the clutches of the murderous King Saul. And every single time he has to flee, he has to leave something else behind. Here's some of the things David lost in these near-death escapes. He lost his job in the king's court as the court musician, very prestigious. He lost his possessions Literally, he lost everything in one night. He has to escape out the window of his house. He leaves it all behind. Escapes with the clothes on his back. He even loses his wife, Saul's daughter, Michal. She tells him, leave me now. Run for your life. And they're reunited much later, but the relationship is really never the same. He loses his mentor, Samuel, the prophet who anointed him. But the rapid pace of David's moves is too much for him. He's an old man, and so he has to stay behind. And then he loses his only real friend, Jonathan. They part tearfully, and before they're reunited again, Jonathan is killed. And then, to cap it all off, David even loses his dignity. Because to save his own life, he goes to a city named Gath. Now, does anybody recognize that word? Gath. Gath was the hometown of somebody famous. Do you know who it was? 
Goliath. So it's a Philistine city. In fact, it's the Philistine headquarters, the enemies of Israel. And David rightly thinks, Saul's never going to follow me there. I'm going to hide out in Gath. Nobody will recognize him. And instantly, like within an hour after his arrival, some officers in the Philistine army recognize him and want to kill him, of course. And to keep them from murdering him, David pretends he is insane. And the Bible puts some really interesting details in there. It says he goes up to the gates of the city and he writes indecipherable marks on there, like a, like a crazy person writing his own language, you know, some conspiracy theory that he's writing out. It says he lets saliva dribble down his beard and acts like he's having epileptic fits. And they boot him out of town because they perceive him to be a madman. And, and we actually now know from Philistine writings that have been discovered that the Philistines thought that insanity was contagious. And so they were just like, get him out! And then stripped of everything, we get to our first verse in the chapter we're looking at today. 1 Samuel 22.1 So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Agilom. This is the actual cave of Agilom in Israel. Now get this, it's only about two miles up the Ella Valley. We saw this satellite photo last weekend, two miles from the spot where David killed Goliath. So think of what this felt like psychologically. Almost overnight, right around the corner from his greatest triumph, he is in a hole with nothing. Wow. Now, the entrance to the cave even looks like a hole. So you could say that David goes into a depression, literally. He's in a depression in the earth, and he's in a depression in his soul. And he's just looking around going, what, what just happened? Well, life happened, right? Like a lot of us, David had a plan, but... In the words of the great theologian, Mike Tyson, <laughs> everyone has a plan till they get punched in the mouth, right? <laughs> well, David got punched in the mouth. Ever, ever, ever get surprised at how fast life can take a U-turn? And that's David right here. And I know some of you have been there. I know some of you are there right now where you're like, yesterday everything was fine. Yesterday my car worked. Yesterday, I, I hadn't had this diagnosis. Yesterday, she was alive. It seems like yesterday, I had a good relationship with my kids or, or with my spouse. And now, everything took a U-turn. That's David. And soon, it gets worse. It says, soon his brothers and all his other relatives joined him there in the cave. Now, do you think he was happy to see him? Remember, these are the same exact people who tried to hide him on draft day when Samuel came around. These are the same brothers who viciously insulted him before he fought Goliath. Why were they here? Because they loved David? No, because Saul's after them too. So you got your high-maintenance relatives with you, and then it gets worse. It says, then others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just discontented, lovely. Here's a question for you. When you're depressed, do you feel like going to a party with tons of people? Great party. Or do you kind of just want to be alone? Alone, right? Most of us. 
Well, here's what David gets. A, his annoying relatives, and B, all the high-maintenance people in the entire country. It says about 400 men squeezed into the cave with him. It's almost humorous. When I picture this, I picture, do you ever see What About Bob? I picture Bill Murray. I picture David with about 400 Bobs all crowding into the cave and they're all crying in unison, David, I need, I need, echoing through the cave, right? How do you imagine David must have felt? Well, you don't have to imagine because he wrote about it. Two of his psalms in the Bible, Psalm 142 and Psalm 57, were actually written during this period. So now that you know the background, let me read you just all of one of them, Psalm 142. And as you listen to his words, this was written in, the, in that cave. So imagine the dark. Imagine the cold. Imagine the B.O. from all those characters crowding in right next to him, right? This is the mind space David is in when he writes, I cry out to the Lord. I plead for the Lord's mercy. I pour out my complaints to him, and I tell him all my troubles. I am overwhelmed. You know the way to safety, only you, because wherever I go, my enemies have set traps for me. I look for somebody to come and help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares a bit about what happens to me. And then I pray to the Lord, oh Lord, I say you are my place of refuge. You're you're all I really want in life. Hear my cry, for I'm very low. Rescue me from my persecutors, for they are they're too strong for me. Bring me out of this prison so I can thank you. He's like, I want to thank you. Well, I want to thank you, but I'm not there yet. So free me from this prison and then the godly will crowd around me. Isn't that kind of funny that he has that line, knowing his context? It's kind of like he's saying, and not these bozos I'm next to right now, for you are good to me. How do you survive cave times? Not avoid cave times, because cave times happen to all of us. And I think this is especially important for us after the David and Goliath story, which we covered last weekend. And look up here for a minute, because I don't want you to miss this. When you were a kid, if you ever went to Sunday school or church, or you ever had some Bible comic about Bible stories, or a Bible storybook book, or, or you watched Veggie Tales, I can guarantee you the story of David fighting Goliath was in there. And I can guarantee you the cave years were not. But think of this. For David, the Goliath battle that was approximately one hour on one day. The cave times lasted, most Bible scholars believe, about seven years. One day of triumph and then, you know, maybe a few months of prosperity, then seven years in the cave. And follow me here. When we only tell the positive, encouraging stories from the Bible, we paint an unbiblical picture of life. And it messes people up. People go, as somebody emailed me this week, what happened? 
I put my pebble into play. I believed my God was bigger. And then all the wheels came off. So what do you do? What did David do? Well, there's so much to say, and I put a ton more resources in the Chasing David book, but just to quickly summarize, number one, you start with this. Tell God how you feel. You tell God how you honestly feel. We saw David do it right in verse one. I cry out, I plead, I pour out, what, praises at this point? Thanks? No, complaints. I tell him all my troubles. Do not hold back a thing about how you feel when you come in prayer to God. You know, sometimes I think we feel like I gotta be on my best behavior when I pray, right? I can only, only say good things to God about what I'm grateful for and so on. I can't just kind of complain to him and tell him I'm mad at him. Why do we get that idea? Here's my little theory. Any of you had a parent who, when you were crying and whining as a kid, got to the point where they had had enough and told you, finish the sentence, if you don't stop crying, I'm going to give you something to cry about. And we think, if I tell God how I really feel, he's going to give me something to cry about, right? Zap! But all the spiritual giants of the Bible prayed like this. Even Jesus. I love this quote from Philip Yancey. As the Bible clearly shows, God has a high threshold of tolerance for what is appropriate to say in a prayer. God can handle my unsuppressed rage. I may well find that my vindictive feelings need God's correction, but only by taking those feelings to God will I have the opportunity for correction and healing. In other words, how in the world are you going to get to where God wants you to be if you don't start from where you really are, right? And that's why David is so honest. You know, I'm very low. Rescue me from my persecutors. They're too strong for, they're too strong for him. This is the guy who defeated a giant. He goes, they're too strong for me. They're too strong. Listen, that realization is where God wants us to go, to admit I'm powerless over this, because ironically, that is when you find strength. Now, let me show you what I mean, and I want to show you this isn't just like Sunday school propaganda. Dan Wagner is part of our fellowship here. You're going to hear his story in more detail next weekend. It's riveting. But some of you know he was in a devastating car accident. He and his wife were severely injured their two teenage daughters, their only children, killed. And Dan wrote a little book called According to His Purpose about his own cave time for years after that accident. And right in the middle of the book, it's really a wonderful book, there's a poem that Dan wrote. There's about eight stanzas to this poem, and he wrote it sort of as he continued processing his grief. And I just want to show you part of it, sort of the beginning and the end. Right out of the middle of the book, he calls the poem Grace. This is raw stuff. He wrote, darkness, deeper than I ever thought possible, closes in on me like a stalker. My life is over. I have nothing left to live for. Oh, God, I'm so afraid I can hardly breathe. Why me? What did I do to deserve this? 
And then he writes what he perceived to be God's answer. Grace. My love will conquer your fear. The rains have stopped, but the darkness persists. What little sunlight that slips between the clouds just reveals the extent of the damage in my life. There's much work to be done, exhausting work. Oh, God, give me the strength to go on, to rebuild my life from this, this rubble. Give me a reason to live. Grace, let my joy be your strength. And here's where it gets at the end. God's merciful grace. His peace slowly dispels the darkness. I can finally see beyond my pain. There's joy again in my precious memories. Yes, God does care for me, though I don't understand what he is doing or why. But I finally feel I can trust him again. Oh, God, help me stand and walk with you once more. Grace, lean on my grace. Now, I wanted to show this to you, especially if you're in a cave right now, to assure you there is hope and there is healing and there is help. When, like Dan, like David, you start with telling God how you honestly feel. And then slowly you get to the second place and you trust God for who he is. Not for what he does, but for who he is. Did you notice that this is where David goes in Psalm 142? He says, in fact, I'm going to put verse 5 here on screen and let's all read it out loud together, all right? Because I don't want you to miss this. Here we go. He says, then I pray to you, Oh, Lord, I say, you are my place of refuge. You're all I really want in life. Listen, David had to get to the point where fortune and fame really didn't matter to him anymore. The point where the crown of the castle and approval and admiration and possessions and prestige really didn't matter to him anymore. The point where he was able to say, all I really want is you to be close to you, to know you. And when you get to the point where the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the dream job or owning the perfect house or the attention and admiration and accolades don't matter as much as I just want to know you, Lord. That is such a freeing place to be because otherwise it's so easy for all those things to, to control you, to become obsessions for you, to become gods to you. But how do you get to that place? Well, did you notice the very last words in Psalm 142? For you are good to me. Not life is good. Not it's all good. It's not always all good. But you are good. When bad things happen to you, it does not mean that what they told you about God is wrong. 
It does not mean that what they told you about you is wrong. It does not mean you're not doing it right. The Christian life. Bad things happen to every great hero in the Bible, again, including Jesus. And I, I really want to talk about this. This has been such a burden on my heart, like for a month or two, because I've been hearing more and more people in person, on podcasts and interviews, saying that they have left the faith because they're going through some very difficult times in their lives. Now, I'm very sympathetic. Life can sometimes be so hard. But I want to state something very clearly. The foundation of our faith is not happily ever after endings. The foundation of our faith is not answered prayer. The foundation of our faith is not the blessings we receive. As much as I love all those things and appreciate all those things, I'm grateful for all those things, what I'm saying is the foundation of our faith is not the good life. The foundation of our faith is our good God. Trusting that God is good even when life is not good. And when that is my baseline, what happens is then I can trust that even through this thing that is bad, God is going to bring good because God is God and God is good. In fact, you know, there's, a, there's an old line that we say maybe once in a while, like once a year here, but, but, but some of you grew up in churches where this was part of the worship service, where the pastor would say, God is good, and the people would say, all the time, and then the pastor would say, and all the time, and the people would say, God is good. So let's try it. God is good, and all the time, once more, God is good, and all the time, now, some of you are going, amen, I have learned that. Others, not so sure. So what do you do if you're not there yet? What do you do if you don't know what to think? You're too tired to think. Well, there's another psalm written in that cave, Psalm 57. And David says in verse 1, check this out. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me. For in you my soul takes refuge. Now, watch this. I will, so beautiful, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Refuge is one of David's favorite words uh, to describe God. He uses it 40 times in his Psalms. And the picture he's painting is of a chick taking shelter under mama's wings. And he's saying, I may not understand what's going on. The rain is pelting and the wind is driving, but I don't have to overthink this. I can simply take shelter, refuge under my God's wings, simply trust him. Because when you go there, you're reassured of two things. Next verse, David says, I cry out to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. He's saying, I know it doesn't look like it right now. I'm in a cave. I don't have anything. But I believe that God's going to fulfill his destiny for me. And I want to tell you, if you're in a cave right now, God still has a plan for you. Your life is not over. Now, that may be completely different than your plan, but he has a plan still. And at the end of Psalm 57, David says, For your unfailing love is as high as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Unfailing love. 
Again, God still has a plan for you. And in this verse, he's saying, and God still loves you. And some of you really need to know that. So I'm going to say it again. God still has a plan for you. And God still loves you. Take refuge under those wings. You don't have to figure it all out. Just hear him whisper, I'm here. I've still got a plan. And I love you so much. So you tell God honestly. You trust God completely. And then third, you serve God by helping others. Actually, serving other people is part of the strategy for the cave times. Remember those 400 high-maintenance guys? Well, later in the same verse it says, and he, David, became their commander. And all these rejects, led by David the reject, become an army of rejects, and eventually once David becomes king, the Bible says they become the mighty men of Israel. They had nothing left. But David saw those 400 people, and he, and he emerged from his own self-pity, and he said, I am going to help you and forge you into something. And then 1 Samuel 22 goes on to tell the story of just one of those 400 men. And I think the narrator is telling us, I don't have time to tell you all 400 stories, but this was typical. Uh, as the chapter 22 goes on, it says, one of the times David's fleeing, he continues to a city called Nob. And the priests in the city of Nob feed him, shelter him, but King Saul's chief herdsman, who's watching goats on the hillside above the village, a guy named Doeg. Doesn't that sound bad? Doeg. He sees this. He reports it to Saul. And Saul is enraged, and he tells his bodyguards, I want you to go to Nob, and I want you to kill all 85 of the priests there. And his bodyguards recognize the king is unhinged, and they actually refuse to do it. But Doeg sees this as his big chance to get in good with Saul. And he says, I'll do it. And he goes to Nob, and he slays every priest. And then Saul, hearing about this, becomes just hyped up with rage. And he tells Doeg, don't stop now. Kill every person in the whole village. And Doeg does. And just a few people escape. And one of them makes it, guess where? David's cave. He's one of those 400, a guy named Abiathar, the grandson of the high priest of Nob. And when he shows up in the cave, it says, he tells David what happened. And then David said to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I, I knew that he would be sure to tell Saul, I'm responsible for the death of your whole family. Now stay with me. Don't be afraid anymore. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. Now, David is still in his own cave time. He hasn't gotten out of his cave time yet. He has nothing. But he says to somebody else in their cave time, don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. You're safe here. And what the author is telling us is this scene was repeated 400 times. Can you see how this helped David? Tell me if you're like me. I find one very bad habit I can get into when I'm in a cave is constantly thinking about myself. My feelings, my anxieties, my moods, my problems, I call this ingrown eyeballs. Anybody here ever have ingrown eyeballs? The solution, 
outgrown eyeballs. Think of myself less and think of others more. And let me offer a very specific point of application here. Today, as you heard Robin say, in the lobby, it's Connect Expo. That's our volunteer fair. There's a map on back of the sermon notes where every group has a table set up. I challenge you, go out there today and choose a way to serve, especially if you're not involved in something already. You will find that service helps to bring you out of your darkness. Now, I want to highlight just one of the unique opportunities that we have. You may not know this, but our neighbor, Cabrillo College, brings in athletes on football scholarships. They're, the, the tuition's paid for, but often these young men are from extremely tough backgrounds, from poverty. And I just found out recently that a lot of them are living in their cars, these students. I mean, they're a lot like David's 400 men in some ways. And so we heard about it and we thought, can we just offer this opportunity to the church? Because my guess is some of us have an extra room. Can you, even if just for the semester, allow one of these college students to stay there? Now, I know you've got questions. More details are in your bulletins. There's a contact there. You can talk to the people outside of the lobby. But please consider this or one of the other service opportunities. It has a powerful impact. Now, as we close, let me take you back to that cave in Israel. When all I wanted to do, as you'll recall, is go back to the entrance, because that was familiar to me, or, or stop to move ahead into the darkness, what I had to keep telling myself over and over and over and over again was, this is not a cave, it's a tunnel. This is not a cave, it's a tunnel. At least Johnny alleged, this is not a cave, it's a tunnel. This is all going somewhere. And as I kept inching forward, finally I saw a glimmer of light and I moved toward it, and suddenly, I was out. I was in the light. And I want to tell you today that no matter what darkness you are in, it's not a cave. It's a tunnel. Say that with me. It's not a cave. It's a tunnel. Turn to somebody next to you, look at them and say, it's not a cave, it's a tunnel. It's not a cave. It's not a cave. It's a tunnel. See, if you think it's just a cave, what happens is you sit there and you keep looking back at the entrance thinking of the good old days, or you sit down and you won't move anywhere, but it's not a cave, it's a tunnel. So keep moving forward, that's the way out. Now, here's the really cool thing. Jesus made this phrase true about every bad thing. By his resurrection, he made even the grave into a tunnel. And he promises he will do that for every bad thing. And do you see, that's why we can ultimately have total confidence. Because he's there in the darkness with us leading us out, leading us forward, leading us into the light. And so let me wrap up with this. As the closing illustration for this message, I'm going to ask Trent and the band to come back out because, you know, it's tempting to end a message on David's cave times by cutting right to, and then David was crowned king. See, everybody, it all turned out okay. And yes, that really happened, and we'll get there. But it took a while. 
And yes, you will get to the light again, but maybe it'll take a while. So for now, I just want us to stay with David in the cave, because that's real too. That's life. That's life too. And you know what? You can find hope there too, even before the happy ending comes. So since David's words were originally song lyrics, we thought, let's end the message with a song. Trent wrote a new song based on David's lyrics, and I asked him to sing that for us now, and I just want to encourage you, listen to these lyrics, imagine being in the cave with David as he writes them, and make these your prayer today.
There's hope. It's not a cave, it's a tunnel. Let's pray together. Lord, I know that there must be people here in this room, a group this size, where there are a ton of people in the cave. But God, I think of those 400 men, and, and, and that's kind of what church is, a bunch of people who were in trouble, in debt because of our sin, discontented. But the son of David, Jesus, told us, don't be afraid, you'll be safe with me. And so here we are. And so I want to pray for everybody in a cave today that they would know that you're good. And Lord, maybe some here are even at the point where they want to follow you as those 400 followed David and want to, want to do that for the first time, saying, I, I came here in a cave and I want to follow you out, Jesus. And I don't know exactly what it means to follow you, but, but as much as I understand, I want to follow you and commit all my life, all the ups and all the downs to you, the one who made every cave into a tunnel by your resurrection power. God, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.